when anyone looks at me, let them see Jesus. Let me be a reflection of His love and mercy to them. When they start to read my life story, I wanted to bring my Savior glory. Me, let them see him. I'm not looking for fortune, and I'm not looking for fame. I'm not so concerned that all the world knows my name. But I am consumed with one passion. To share what the Lord's done for me, and I want my life to shine with the light, so all those around me can see. When anyone looks at me, let them see Jesus. Let me be a reflection of His love and mercy to them. Start to read my life story. I wanted to bring my Savior glory. When anyone looks at me, let them see Him. Every good and perfect gift that I possess is sent from the Father above. And thanks for the way that I've truly. to read my life story. I wanted to bring my Savior glory when anyone looks at me. When anyone looks at me. When anyone looks at me. darling. If you have your Bible uh, today, would you turn with me to Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38. The title of the message today is, Don't Ask for a Sign. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look with me at verse 38. It says, some of the scribes and Pharisees. This is talking about a very select committee. This is probably the sharpest minds that the scribes and Pharisees had. They were on a mission to find Jesus saying something that was wrong or something that would make the Roman authorities angry. And they wanted to be there when he said it so they could report it. And so eventually that could bring about the death of Jesus. They were following him around, uh, trying as best they could to catch him. The scribes had to be 30 years of age or older. Most of them were in their 60s, 70s. They were much older. These were the folks that had spent many, many, many years studying the Hebrew scriptures, especially the Torah, the law and the rabbinic traditions that are set forth in the Talmud. If you have a bulletin, I put down at the bottom of uh, the outline of my sermon some definitions I thought might be helpful. The Torah and the Pentateuch uh, are the same thing. They are the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, They're written by Moses under the inspiration of God. It is God's direction for living the covenant that God had uh, with the Jewish people. Now, the Talmud uh, is a collection of books and writings and commentaries uh, compiled by the Jewish rabbis from A.D. 250 to 500. It is a library of Jewish uh, tradition. Uh, Sometimes uh, we say that our sayings are just as important as Scripture. Uh, We say, you know, we have these sayings that have been around in our family for a long time, and we think we can build our lives on those sayings, and they're true. And we know they're true, and we jump up and down and say they're true. Well... You say, well, what's an illustration of that? Let me give you one. All politicians are crooks. (laughs) You know, we have heard that over and over and over again in our lives. Some kids have heard that a thousand times, so they grow up and they tell their kids that. Well, by the time that goes through two or three generations, everybody thinks all the politicians are crooks. Well, guess what? All of them are crooks. Uh, We have a fella uh, named Ed Rayburn that's representing some of you uh, in our state uh, government. He grew up in my former church. He's a fine, young Christian man, loves his wife, loves his kids. He's a godly man trying to do godly work and trying to help our state. Well, he's not a crook. Uh, I know him well. Uh, The scribes thought that their uh, influence in writing and collecting these parts of the Talmud were just as important as Scripture. And that was the very thing that got them in so much trouble with Jesus. 
Because Jesus always called them out when they got way out on this Talmud stuff. That wasn't the Holy Scripture. The Torah was the Holy Scripture. Uh, The Talmud wasn't. There's one other that I just thought I'd throw in. The Mishnah is the first part of the Talmud and the written uh, basis of religious authority and all of the laws for traditional Judaism. It contains a written collection of all the traditional laws handed down orally from father to son, from father to son, from teacher to student, from teacher to student, over and over again. And so uh, during the years uh, 200 B.C. to 135 A.D., some of the Jewish uh, scribes got all these together, put them together, and said these are the ways, as you read the Mishnah, that you can learn how to follow the Torah. Well, the scribes were known as the super uh, knowledgeable, bright, brilliant, supreme interpreters and teachers of the law. Uh, this is stated in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. Although some of the scribes belonged to the party of the Sadducees, most of them belonged to the party of the Pharisees. They were the authorized interpretive scholars and lawyers of Judaism. And they were generally held in great honor. Everybody thought, woo, woo, there are the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, They are very, very important people. They know the scripture like no one else. They answered Jesus' scathing accusations by asking him a question, a seemingly forthright and non-defensive question. They were trying to determine to give the impression of civility in front of the people. They didn't want the people to think they were really badgering Jesus because the people loved Jesus. And a lot of people were following Jesus that he had healed. So the scribes had to kind of walk carefully here. The Pharisees as well. Uh, They were just waiting for that appropriate moment when Jesus would say something that they could grab onto and report back to the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities and Jesus would be put to death. Well, point one this morning is the demand. You see this in the second part of verse 38. Teacher, uh, the scribe said, we want to see a sign from you. The group of scholars and religious leaders considered uh, no person capable of understanding the scripture better than they did. They were the a final result of all of the brain power uh, that was involved with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the only one, they thought, that were qualified to be a teacher, uh, to lead out in a discussion about Scripture, about Jewish law. Their addressing Jesus as teacher was therefore sarcastic. Uh, They didn't really mean that he was a great teacher. Uh, They just said that, and it was very hypocritical as well. 
It was sarcastic in that they considered Jesus to be a heretic and a false teacher. It was their intention here, as in all of the previous occasions, to expose him as a false teacher. It was hypocritical in that they used the title to show a mock respect for him. In front of the crowd, they possibly wanted to get him uh, to where he would feel at ease and might uh, say something wrong. The request, we want to see a sign from you, was really a demand by them. They had a lot of authority in Israel. It was, it was really a demand for Jesus to prove himself to be the Messiah, not just to say it. A lot of the people by this time were saying he is the Messiah. And of course the scribes and Pharisees knew that, so they wanted to combat that. And so they said, we want to see a great big sign. We want you to do something that is so awesome that everybody would know that you are the Messiah. Well, uh, what they really wanted was to prove Jesus not to be the Messiah and to prove him to be a blasphemous imposter. Because the scribes and Pharisees were the uncontested experts of the law, the people would expect them to know how to question somebody to find out if they really were uh, the Messiah. And so this was nothing out of the usual uh, for the people there. The implication of the question was that if Jesus really is the Messiah, he would have no trouble performing an appropriate sign to validate his identity. The kind of sign they wanted is not specified in our scripture. But it must have been something absolutely extraordinary, something way different from anything that anybody had ever seen before, something with worldwide magnitude is what they were asking for, such as making the sun stand still, for a few hours or maybe even a whole day. Something like uh, changing the configuration of the stars uh, so that when the folks looked up into the sky the next night, the Big Dipper uh, would be upside down or something like that. Uh, Or to see the moon uh, race across the sky, something like that. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. They didn't think he could do that. And so that's what they were challenging him to do. Well, the fact is, Jesus had already performed literally thousands of miracles right in front of them. I mean right in front of them. He had healed people that couldn't hear, and all of a sudden they were able to hear. People that couldn't see, and all of a sudden they were able to see. People that couldn't walk, they were lame, they were hindered in some way physically. They were healed instantaneously. Those that uh, were filled with demons, he cast out those demons. Those even that were dead, he had raised them. He had done all these miracles right in front of them. He had given all of these signs from no further than 10 feet away. They had watched all of this. 
So it's just ridiculous for them to ask him for an additional sign. But this is what they were uh, demanding, something on a greater scale than they had had. The Jews had come to expect miraculous signs from anybody that said they were a prophet. So in Jesus uh, uh, claiming to be the Messiah, they thought, boy, he's really got to do something great uh, to prove that. No doubt the scribes and Pharisees wanted a celestial sign from Jesus, uh, a spectacular, sensational demonstration of supernatural power. They perhaps expected him to fulfill Joel's uh, prophecy of turning the moon to blood in Joel 2.31, or to paint the sky a rainbow of colors with a wave of his hand, or perhaps he could cause a great procession of angels to come down out of the clouds and and there would be steps that would appear that they could walk on as they came down out of the clouds and there would be thousands of them and they would be singing Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus. Well, that's what they wanted him to do because they didn't believe that he could do it. Although no New Old Testament prophecy said that the Messiah had to give a sign, that's what they were asking for. And they were getting the people to believe, well, now in the Old Testament, uh, it says that the Messiah's got to give a a great sign of him being the Messiah, which was a total lie. All right, point number two. Here is Jesus' answer. Look at uh, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet now Jesus responded to this hypocritical challenge by first declaring that the request he's he's taking issue with the request he says the request for a sign uh, is a wicked expectation from an evil and adulterous generation. How would you like to have somebody stand right in front of you pointing their finger at you saying that? That's exactly what Jesus did. Right in front of them. Uh, He wasn't uh, cowering in fear of what they might do or say. The scribes and Pharisees represented the nation of Israel in many ways which had wandered very, very far away from God's word, from the Torah, the Pentateuch. And and that's where the scribes and Pharisees wanted to take the people, to the Talmud, what they had written, what they thought, what their ideas were. That's where they wanted the people to be. And, of course, that's what caused all the problems and conflicts with Jesus. They had not only wandered far from God's word, but far from God's fellowship. They were superficial. They were self-righteous. They were a legalistic religion that these leaders epitomized. They were the final result of that kind of a mindset. And of course, that's what they wanted to be. They had become what they wanted to be. 
But what they wanted to be was very, very far away from what God wanted them to be. Their idolatry, immorality, unbiblical traditions, and hardness of heart marked them as an evil people. During the Babylonian captivity, the Jews had forsaken formal idolatry. They learned in that captivity not to worship something that was made of wood, an idol made of wood, or of stone, or of some kind of metal. Uh, They moved away from that. But in place, they erected man-made tradition as their idol, in which they trusted, in which they put their hope. They had abandoned the Canaanite gods for gods of their own making, gods of tradition, gods of of symbols that they had had put out before the people. Uh, They no longer offered sacrifices to Baal and Molech, but they also were not true to the true God of Israel. A Jew who faithfully served God under the covenant given to Moses would accept his son if they met him because anyone rightly related to the father would be rightly related to the son just as the godly Simeon had done. When Simeon saw Jesus, he knew immediately that that was the Messiah. When he saw Anna, she knew that that was the Messiah. When John the Baptist saw him, he knew that that was the Messiah. The 12 disciples, uh, except Judas, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah because they knew the Father, they knew the Son. And they did not need a sign to verify his identity. Jesus continued. He said this to them. They had just asked for a sign. Jesus says in response to that, no, there's not going to be a sign. It was not possible for Jesus to do the kind of sign that they wanted. Not because he didn't have the power to do it. He could have, uh, if he wanted to, made the moon disappear. Uh, He could have made all the sheep in the land disappear. He could have made all the scribes and Pharisees disappear, which would have been even better. But that wasn't the methodology that our Lord wanted. That wasn't the way the Lord wanted him to respond. There was a plan in place of how all this was going to happen. On the other hand, he said, another sign would be given, the sign of Jonah the prophet. When Jonah refused to obey God's call to preach to Nineveh, God said, go over there, preach to the Ninevites. Jonah thought about it and he thought, I don't want to do that. I don't like those people. They're they're not nice people. They'd probably kill me. I don't want to go over there. I don't like them. So he turned and went exactly the opposite way to Tarshish. And along the way, God caused a great storm on the water. And the guys on the ship, uh, Jonah was on the ship, the guys uh, realized that they were all going to die. And they said, you know, we wonder why 
God is so mad at us. And as they conversed, they realized that this was Jonah's fault. So they threw him overboard. Well, the scripture says a great fish or a sea monster, whichever translation you're using, uh, this great fish came and swallowed uh, Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, Jesus said, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Old Testament contains two kinds of prophetic uh, ministry regarding Christ. One is what we might call verbally predictive, in which specific and sometimes detailed pers- uh, predictions were given. Such prophecies would include things like uh, Christ would be born of a virgin that is mentioned in Isaiah 7:14, or that he would be a descendant of David, uh, which is mentioned in Jeremiah 23, 5, or that he would be born in Bethlehem, which is mentioned in Micah 5, 2. The second type of messianic prophecy in which an Old Testament person or event foreshadows the person or the work of the Messiah, of Christ. We can be certain that uh, nothing would be accepted in that mode if it were not uh, designated in the New Testament. The New Testament had to confirm that in order for it to be this kind of prophecy. Here Jesus himself tells us that Jonah is spending three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish before he was vomited up on the shore and was typified uh, the burial of the Son of Man for three days, three nights in the heart of the earth before he came out, before his resurrection. Just as Jonah was buried in the depths of the sea, Jesus was buried in the depths of the earth. Just as Jonah came out of the great fish after three days, Jesus came out of the grave after three days. Jesus obviously believed the full biblical account of Jonah. If Jonah had not been literally swallowed and miraculously protected while submerged for three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, that event would not have typified Jesus' literal burial and resurrection. The matter of three days and three nights has been a great problem for some Bible students. It's often either used to prove Jesus was mistaken about the time or that he would actually spend in the tomb or that he could not have been crucified on Friday afternoon and raised early on Sunday morning. They said that doesn't all jive. Well, the first uh, day of the week, as you know, uh, was Sunday, was the Sabbath. Uh, But as in modern usage, the phrase, a day and a night, can mean 
not only a 24-hour period, but it can mean any representative part of that period. To spend a day or a day and a night visiting a neighboring city does not require you to spend 24 hours there. It could refer to arriving in late morning and leaving a few hours after dark. In the same way, Jesus' use of three days and three nights does not have to be interpreted as 72 hours, but three 24-hour days. It doesn't have to be that. The Jewish Talmud, now here's the thing that some people neglect to speak of or neglect to teach when they're trying to make a point against this being scriptural. The Jewish Talmud that everybody in that day was familiar with held that any part of a day is as the whole. The Talmud taught that. Jesus was simply using a common, well-understood generalization. Jesus' resurrection three days later was the kind of sign the unbelieving religious leaders expected and demanded. It wasn't perhaps as great as some they had hoped for, but this would be significant. It was infinitely more miraculous and wonderful than anything they should have expected. It was the final sign that Jesus gave the world of his messianic credentials. In his glorified body, as you know, Jesus appeared at many times to many different people. Over 500 at one time, they saw him in his resurrected form. Then, of course, he dramatically ascended into heaven. His own resurrection, uh, Jesus told the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees, would be the only sign, the only sign, from heaven that they would receive. Now, point three. This is the last word. Uh, some people have said, well, I need a sign. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you have thought about something, and you're a religious person, you're a Christian person, and you've thought to yourself, well, you know, if God does this, if God shows me this sign, then I'll do that. Have you ever heard somebody say, if I win the lottery, that's a sign. That's a sign from God that I should buy a houseboat. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm going to put out a, uh, a rug on the porch. And the dew of the morning, if it's all over everything else and everything else is wet and this uh, uh, mat is dry, that's a sign that I can do what I want to do. Or if in the morning when I get up and make breakfast and I can see the face of Jesus in the scrambled egg, that is a sign that I'm going to be getting from God. You know, some people say, God, let me know. Let me know. I want to know your will. Let me know. Give me a sign. A lot of people, a lot of Christians do that. Today, Well, friends, he already has let us know. We have the only sign 
that we're ever going to have. We have the sign that he gave. The ma- no matter how superficially religious or moral somebody might be, if they reject the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, then they're not a Christian. If you hear someone ask for a sign, say to them hurriedly, we've already gotten the sign. It's the risen Christ. You can put your faith and your trust in him. This morning, that's what I want to ask all of you that are in the house to do. Put your faith and your trust in him. I don't know every single person that's in the room today. Maybe there's one or two or ten or twenty, I don't know, that have never in their life trusted and believed in Christ as their Lord and Savior. You have made a proclamation of your faith in him. If you're in the house today, accept the sign that Jesus has given, that he has risen from the dead. And that he is alive and well at the right hand of the Father even today. If you're in the house, you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, you love the Lord. We want to ask you today to come and join with us, be a part of our church family. Help us to minister not only in the Sun City area, but also in the county and in the state and through our missionaries across the world. That We can touch hearts and lives for Jesus. Come and help us do that. We need your help. Come and stand with us as we try and represent Christ in the marketplace of today. I'm going to be standing right down here at the front. If the Lord would lead, you just slip out and slip forward. Come and take a stand for Christ. Let's stand together as we sing.